Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day! Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Historical Radio for episode number 1403, entitled Oh My Goats! The Legend of Tarn Grisna and Tarn Gnostja. <laughs> I, I think it might actually be Tarn Yosta. Podcast title is Omnipotence City. <laughs> I can't do this, it's too hard. <laughs> I need to hammer all these puns down, I think. Yes, I am Rob Jan. I say the yay. <laughs> and Megan McHugh, um, fellow screaming goat. <laughs> yeah. Guard your ass and your goats because we are romping off with Thor 4, which is to say mm. love mm. and thunder. <laughs> when I went to see this, my session was bracketed by a rainbow, Ooh. and a thunderstorm afterwards. I, Perfect. I, I kid you not, or I goat you not. So, it is the sequel to Thor Ragnarok mm-hmm. from 2017, and it is the 29th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. As we said, there are four Thor films, and we do know that Odin's son, which is to say... Chris Hemsworth mm-hmm. is featured in all four of the Thor films and also featured in all four Avengers movies. So that's mm. eight movies altogether. He's been seen in some shorts and some armor and some trousers and other things. And a sheet. <laughs> and a sheet. And also without all of those things in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> a sheet. Yes, I remember that. Um, Asgardians in general have been featured in across those movies. Of course, Loki was one of the instigators of the attack on New York in the first Avengers movies and, in fact, was key in assembling the Avengers. Mm -hmm. Not that he really wanted to do that, but it's the way it worked out, and as it did in the original comic books too. So, of Mm -hmm. course, there was the Loki spin-off series later on. Yes. And also we got uh, Sif, another Asgardian in that too. We had... Darcy, uh, Natalie Portman's Jane Foster companion from the first Thor movie in WandaVision. Yes. We also got Sif appearing in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. alongside the Enchantress. So they've actually been sort of quite critical in various aspects of the MCU. And if they're not actually on screen, they're often mentioned. It's true. It's true. Um, Same with... uh... Professor Selvig, I believe. Um, Eric. Yes, Stellan Skarsgård pops up quite a few times uh, throughout. Quite often without his trousers as well. It's true. It's a whole thing in the Thor universe. Now, this is the thing. The first 
Thor movie was directed by none other than Sir Kenneth Branagh. It was epic, mm-hmm. actually. I thought he was a perfect choice for it. It was dark. It was brooding. It was vastly different in tone to the rest. It was also fun. And we first mm-hmm. saw That's the true. can being opened on Chris Hemsworth playing Thor with a little bit of a sense of humour. Yes. I will say I think that developed more and more as he appeared in the Avengers films and then obviously was like flying free once we got to Ragnarok. He's very much leaning into the comedic side. But you're right, he always brought a lighter side to the character, even from the beginning. And it's necessary, let's face it. Oh, gosh, you don't want to follow some brooding, boring, huge god around, just someone you can't even empathise with at all, whereas I think Chris Hemsworth has done a lot with the character that may may have been missed if anyone else had played him. And it actually does remind me of some of Jack Kirby's comic books back in the day. You know, we're talking about sort of comic books going back to the origins of Thor as a a comic book character. Mm -hmm. And in those, a lot of those were fairly humourless, you know, Mm. unless it was like someone tripping over a a mead barrel and falling flat on their face. But they actually did decide to bring in sort of comic relief to that with the Warriors 3 who were other Asgardians quickly dispatched in uh, Thor Ragnarok by the Mm -hmm. merciless Taika Waititi. And this thing, it seems to be necessary to bring that comic relief in. But, of course, Taika Waititi lent into that. And why wouldn't he? You know, he is the director of this film. He's the co-writer of this film. Uh, We've seen his other work, Eagle vs. Shark, What We Do in the Shadows, Hunt for the Wilder People, Thor Ragnarok, our flag means death. <laughs> Wellington Paranormal and even Jojo Rabbit. You know Tyker's shtick. You expect him to do what he does. Yeah. yeah. And he does that in this film. Yeah, we've been ramping up the comedy and I'd say this is the full fruition of Taika Waititi's style. Like he'd kind of laid the groundwork with Ragnarok, and I think he's been given a lot more free licence in this because I'd say this really is steeped in his kind of comedy, much more even than Ragnarok, I would say, which I think is maybe why there's a bit of mixed opinion on this one, but we'll get to that a bit later. Do you think that this is the most comedic Marvel film? Definitely. Yeah. Well, Guardians, I mean, obviously with Chris Pratt as the front man, they were always going to, like that was always firmly in this kind of fun, silly, musically driven energy. But I'd say this is probably the most out and out silly entry. Like I think the comedy is quite over the top and I'm not saying that's good or bad. Uh, but I think it's definitely up there. I'd say Guardians would probably be one of the other contenders. Um, there's comedy elements in all the films. I mean, the Spider-Mans as well. But this is Ant-Man really anchored. Ant-Man, of course. Yeah, Paul Rudd. Although he's probably in, they're probably Ant-Man's probably in this film as he's in the background of all the Marvel films, but you just don't see him. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but no, I'd say this tone is one that we've not seen, which is, you know, unique to Taika Waititi, I think. He's brought a lot to the franchise that's his own style. But it's interesting as well. This is very much, I think, a rom-com too. Yes, absolutely. And it leans into those tropes and I think it has a lot of fun with 
certain different styles of like, you know, the, the little look back with the narrator and then also talking through the steps of the story, the love story element. You're quite right. Mm. It actually reminds me a bit of, you know, it's like a, it's a cliche of Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. It's got that sort of feel to it, you know. The t- yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought that um, the fact that the co-writer is uh, somebody who's known for working on rom-coms and so on, as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Jennifer uh, Robinson. So I think it's nice that there's a co-writer on there um, who's a woman who is also maybe bringing that element of the more rom-com, let's, you know, talk through this relationship because the relationship between Thor and Jane is the key and the heart of the film. And, I mean, she's not done very much in her past, but she worked on Someone Great, which is a movie that's on Netflix, which is firmly within the kind of young rom-com type of era. And um, and you mentioned, Rob, that she was a consulting producer on Hawkeye. So she's dipped a toe in the MCU before. And so, yeah, she's come on to co-write this and maybe bring a bit of that extra perspective, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's all of that in the in the mix, and and of course you know like this is a 29th MCU film. We've just come out of what was a fairly grim Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, not un, mm-hmm. not unrelievably grim because it was Sam Raimi, so it was schlocky, yeah. but it was dark. So it was dark schlocky stuff, and this we've gone we've tipped right in the other direction. Um, but just as I think moving the needle over a hundred as well. And in between we had uh, Ms. Marvel as well and um, uh, some uh, animated stuff too. So I feel like this is a, a good time to have a bit of a, a humour break in the MCU. You know, I think we need to have a little bit of lightened up. And in a way this entire fourth phase mm. of the MCU, it's either a, a reaction to everything that happened in phase three or the, exploring the consequences of it. And in this case, we've got poor old Thor. He's sort of spinning out a bit. He's gone off with the Guardians of the Galaxy at the end of, uh, after after Endgame. So he's been roaming the galaxy a bit and having all sorts of adventures. And that's where we pick up with him in this movie. But before we actually get to that, we've got this sort of opening sequence of a raggedy man in the desert. He's dying in the desert very much like the guy in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, where you've got a similar thing going on. Uh, In Star Trek V, the poor fellow meets a messiah in the desert who will alter his destiny, but not so much in the case of the actual character in Star Trek V. He doesn't go on to great things in that it's the messiah. But in this case, the guy becomes kind of a messiah himself which is ironic because he's going to become the God Butcher. (laughs) And his name is Gore. (laughs) Uh, Gore by name and Gore by nature. Although once he sets out on his mission of carnage, he doesn't actually kill all that many gods, does he? No, I mean, a lot of it's implied or happens off screen. And I think it's interesting to start the film with him, actually, because you're right, like we're jumping straight into, okay, this is our key antagonist. Here's a little bit of a sympathetic backstory, hmm. but then we're just going to keep, like, you know, the pace is going 100. <laughs> Played by Christian Bale in a in a really note-perfect performance. 
And it's a pity that they didn't let Christopher Eccleston off the chain as much as he could have been in the second Thor movie because this is the kind of performance that Eccleston would have been all over, really. I, I can't yeah. really explain all of that, and I don't have to because it's not my thing. <laughs> I didn't do any of that. But here, Christian Bale is great. I actually like him better in this as Gore than as Batman, and I really would have liked to have seen more of him. Yeah, he. I honestly think he was spectacular in this. Like the tone was perfect. He was extremely sinister, very scary stuff. Like, and in a movie that was all lightness to go to have him play it. So it doesn't stick out, but is still effective. I think he did a perfect job. Yeah. He's very creepy actually. And the funny thing is, cause I've just recently watched um, stranger things. <laughs> he has a, a habit of tying people up with disembodied tentacles. <laughs> and so do they do that in uh, Stranger Things. So it's, yeah. you know, I feel like a theme I've, of the year. <laughs> I've gone from watching one supervillain monologuing to tied up captives to seeing another one do the same thing. <laughs> oh, it's kind of it's kind of ironic in a way. Well, I think we should have, before we pursue further into Thor, Love and Thunder, some music. The soundtrack of Thor, Love and Thunder, which is being basically being put together by someone we know very well from lots of other shows, uh, including Star Trek, actually, uh, in, in terms of soundtracks, Michael Giacchino. And I, what I love about the soundtrack is all the puns and jokes in the titles of the tracks. So this one riffs off the Jetsons, and it's which is a, a, a cartoon series from the 1960s about a, a family in the future. I can't assume that everybody knows these things now. And it's called Jane, Stop This Crazy Thing, which I, I find hilarious as a track title. This is Matthew Riley, creator of the Scarecrow and Jack West Jr. series, and you're listening to 3 R FM. Yeah. And there we are, <laughs> off with the gods, Thor, love and thunder. Jane, <laughs> stop this crazy thing is the name of the track by Michael Giacchino. Oh, i like, got to love a soundtrack with lots of puns and jokes in the titles. Now, we are talking about the 29th MCU film. And look, I know it sometimes seems like we're always talking about Marvel content on Zero G. And we're not. <laughs> <laughs> but this time we are. I think we there's a lot of it, and th we have to cover things like Thor. It's a pretty big entry. I know I was looking forward to seeing it. It did appear a bit out of nowhere because the trailer was quite late, and then all of a sudden it was out. But yeah, you know, we want to chat through and talk about Thor's latest adventure. So we've established the basic plot of this, which is to say that Christian Bale's character, Gore the Bod, God the Bod Butcher. <laughs> <laughs> that too, that, that too. too. Yes, he's, he's after the, the, the butts of all of the heroic gods and not so heroic gods of myth and legend. So in this movie, it's a multi-pantheon slaughterhouse. You know, yes. we, we see all sorts of re representatives of the Marvel Universe gods. We've got Egyptian ones, and I, th I saw Bast at one stage, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the Greek ones, the you know Mount Olympus, that, that whole pantheon. I saw uh, Maori gods, 
And mm-hmm. also, I think some ones that were completely unidentifiable to me. <laughs> yeah, I think they must have had a lot of fun coming up with some, but I do think there was some effort made because the style of some of them was deliberately trying to be cross-cultural, I think, yeah. and tap into different cultural myths and legends. So very much appreciated that touch. I even saw, because I have a – this is not oh, – isn't a spoiler? No, it's in the trailer. We There's a place called uh, Omnipotence City which is kind of like a big uh, bee hall for the gods, <laughs> basically a temple. And it looks like something out of Dinotopia. You know, it's so magnificently rendered. And I thought that the the uh, cityscapes of Asgard in the first Thor movie were wonderful and yeah. majestic and epic. And this is this is like that only with a, a more of a sort of a, a resort town feel to it. <laughs> and speaking of resorts, we also have New Asgard, which is on Earth, yes. as we saw which in is... the previous Avengers movies. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. a tourist spot. It's, I definitely, I mean, that to me felt like him tapping into the whole Lord of the Rings Hobbit, like that tourist, um, that kind of tourist destination in New Zealand. And I definitely think that was uh, an inspired move. Like I loved the parts that were set in New Asgard and just the little touches of, yeah, what would it be like if this was open for people to come through? And I definitely got like Hobbiton vibes. I think he's, he's definitely incorporated his experience of like New Zealand becoming a bit of a destination for geeks. <laughs> and new Asgard is now ruled by King Valkyrie, which is to say Tessa Thompson, mm-hmm. reprising yep. their role from previous films, but now being in charge. Yep. And you can see it's a bit of a problem for them. You know, <laughs> they've gone from being absolute monarch of the battlefield to, mm-hmm. you know, being in charge of the paperwork and approving the strolling players sort of doing their, their gig in the town yeah. and, you know, look, no doubt looking after the cruise ship schedules when they come into into dock at the little fishing port that is New Asgard, all those sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, there's some great little discussions about what's come with that role and, and, you know, between Tessa Thompson and Natalie Portman's characters. I think their rapport really shines when they're discussing kind of some of that stuff. Um, mm. It was, yeah, that was some good source of comedy, I thought. Now, in the in the process of this film, we get Natalie Portman coming back as Jane Foster, or Dr. Jane Foster, I should very much hasten to say. Yes, she's not been slacking off since we saw her last in the franchise, which was a very long time ago because she kind of exited mm. around uh, number two Thor, which was several years ago now, and has been mentioned in passing, but nothing was really done with her character. She was never really explained, and then all of a sudden they were broken up. Mm. So this is a bit of retrofitting. This is a little bit of going back and creating the story in retrospect, which I'm fine with, and, yeah, forefronting her again. Mm. And in this movie, as you've seen in the trailers, she mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. plays a Thor. There is a franchise. Mm-hmm. I like to call her Jane Forster because that works mm-hmm. for me. But do not call her Lady Thor. No. <laughs> I, I like that too. <laughs> she will become. Good on earth. She will become the mighty Thor if you do that. So it's very important in this film. Uh, look, you know, I'm sure they gave her cauldrons full of gold to reprise her role as Jane Foster. And at the same time, are you crazy? Someone says to you, would you like to be 
to play a Thor in this movie to wield Mew Mew and yeah. go into battle with the other Asgardians and so on. Of course you'd do that. Yeah. No, and that's it. Like, what a fun role. They've obviously enticed her with no doubt cold hard cash, but also she has an interesting storyline. She gets into the action, cool sequences. They make her taller in the film. So one of the oh, things about, because she's, yeah. I didn't realise, but, yeah, in when she's in Mighty Thor mode, she's obviously a bit more buff but she and blonde hair, but she also, they uh, she's much taller because she's quite a, a small statured um Less and so yeah, I didn't realize that necessarily, but I was looking at some behind the scenes stuff, and yeah, they make her a bit taller. Must be the boots, <laughs> yeah, and the little wings in the helmet that sort of loft her up a little bit. Just to oh, there's some great stuff between her, like the reveal that whole sequence. I won't go into it too much, but again, comedy handled pretty well. I thought now, I have no trouble at all with Natalie Portman's portrayal of Mighty Thor, which is. Mm-hmm. what they define her character as. Um, she has proven herself worthy in all sorts of ways and worthy enough to wield Molnir. And that's interesting as well because Molnir and Stormbreaker, the axe hammer that, Horn, uh, that, that Thor has, is they're both characters in this too, just like Doctor Strange's magical cape is. Yeah. Yeah. And they're hilarious. They're great. That comedy element's very well deployed. Like, they really tap into all elements of, like, relationship, jealousy in all its forms, let's say. (laughs) Um, Very, yeah, some good stuff Mm. there. They even take turns competing with their costumes, like the armour that they're wearing. They're both clearly based upon some kind of chromed-up, blinged-up automobiles. Yeah, you know, yeah. different costumes in this one. Yeah, and that's even reflected actually in the end credit uh, artwork too, I think. I think yeah. lots of chrome and, and sleek streamlined sort of stuff. It, that, she is note perfect as Dr. Jane Foster. I think she works mm-hmm. incredibly well with Chris Hemsworth in this film. There is the, the, the necessary sort of fractious chemistry because, you know, X's and... Yep. Yeah, X weapons too with Molnir and Stormbreaker. It gets very complicated there, uh, you know. And, and I think you know Hemsworth is such a good comedian. Yeah, he he does anchor the film, and I think you can only go this tone with where Thor's story is at. In a way, like you know, when we left him, he had almost nothing. Like he'd really been broken down to his very, you know, like he's lost lost family and they cover that in the film but like when you have a character who's gone through all of that it's kind of a bit of that that nice mixture of melancholy but comedy and he pulls all of that off and I think and Taika Waititi I think is a great director to bring out that nuance Mm -hmm. and I think in that way kind of leaning in to the comedy while still dealing with it was a good choice because I don't want to watch a sad movie with a sad Thor the whole time where everything's sad you want to go on a ride, but still tap into that emotional stuff, which I think was done pretty well. Yeah, I, I don't. I think they they nailed the landing for it uh, after the after the build up, and I suppose the only thing I really found a bit off in this film because I was all, all on board for the laconic humor and the silliness mm. and slightly mm. surreal plot at times, and the fact that mm-hmm. it was basically mm-hmm. going to be a wacky ride. I got that. Yes. I I think that because they really did concentrate on the relationship between uh, Nat and Chris in this, we lose 
other characters in the background. We lose uh, Jamie Alexander as Sith, basically. A- so underused, oh, really yes. disappointed by that. Parts of her are left on the cutting room floor, I'm sure. Uh, you know, and we also have Cat <laughs> um, uh, Dennings as uh, Darcy. And, yep. and it's sad because she's a great addition to the cast. I know. I think that was more a little Easter egg, though. I, I can understand why they didn't incorporate her more. Yeah. But Sif could and should have been, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I will say in one, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but the early exit of the Guardians of the Galaxy from the film, I actually think that was a great choice because, to be honest, the first half of the film, it, it took a while for it to grab me. Like, the silliness was almost slightly too much. I wasn't quite, you know, it was, it's very comedy and it was very a certain kind of humour that I wasn't really prepared for necessarily and I think it was felt crowded and then once they kind of hustled them out and started to focus more on the core story, gave Chris Hemsworth a bit more room to breathe, then second half of the film, especially when we're bringing out the relationship stuff and, you know, the nice dynamic with Tessa Thompson in there too, that's the second half really shone. And by then I was laughing at jokes I hadn't laughed at before because there's ongoing jokes, right? And by the time you get to the third or fourth appearance of that joke, like I was just having a great time and it did win me over, but it took a little bit, like the first 20, 30 minutes. um, I was still kind of unsure of the tone anyway. Mm. But, yeah, I think sometimes those decisions to maybe, because I heard that role was cut short, the Guardians was going to be in it more. Yeah. It was. So I think that was actually a good decision to shorten the length of time they were in the film. Well, you know, we lost Jeff Goldblum and Peter Dinklage in their roles as well. They were initially in there and were supposed oh. to be in there. Lena Hetty as well. And, you know, lots oh, of people sort of realize. fell by the way. But we still got cameos from Chris Hemsworth's wife and mm-hmm. from his kids playing him when he was younger, playing Thor. Every everyone's kids too. Like I think yeah. cause there's a group of children in the film and like Tyker's kids, Natalie, uh, Christian's kids. Apparently all the kids were, had roles, which was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, that's good to know in the background. We we could throw Easter eggs at each other all day about yeah. this sort of thing. Yeah. But I, I, I really love to see um, the Asgardian players appear again. These are like you know, <laughs> Matt Damon, Sam Neill, Luke Hemsworth. <laughs> And uh, Melissa McCarthy joining them as well. That was a really nice addition, I will say. And, yeah, I think it's an, it is a good way of getting people up to speed who maybe aren't as invested in the MCU as we are and don't all, already know everything off the cuff. I thought that exposition was handled in a really creative way. Mm. We hardly even see Stellan Skarsgård, but, but that clan, quite honestly, doesn't need any more screen exposure than they've already got. <laughs> No. <laughs> They're everywhere. They are, and lots of them too in some of these films. But yes. Um Omni it's I mean there's Omni, so many people. Omnipresent. <laughs> Omnipresent. But very welcome, I thought, was Russell Crowe. Oh <laughs> uh, I look, I oscillate on his role. I'm like, is this a bit inappropriate? I don't know. He was going over the top. But I don't know. There was a bit of it I was like, ooh, this is towing a line. I don't know. Maybe that's me being a bit oversensitive. But, yeah. Look, I do feel he was channeling a a character from uh, Australian television comedy, like a guy called – he reminded me of Con the Fruiterer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's definitely doing that kind of – 
that stereotype we've seen on Aussie comedy TV for a while. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty funny to see him pop up, actually. Gars gobstopped, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. I'll... Look, it's Taika Waititi. You sort of go with him. You know, you get pulled along by the, the screaming goats in this. <laughs> yes, yes. There is a bit of trust there. And I, I think, too, like the action delivers. And so that it's not just comedy with no action. I'd say the fact the fight sequences, action sequences, Mjolnir's new powers, um, all of that was done amazingly. Like the effects were so good and I thought that really elevated the film too because they had kind of paid attention to to that as well. And plus in the latter half of the film they do some very interesting cinematography um, with the colour palette and things like that and I thought that was – looked so good and was so effective. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on here. But the comedy was what, I mean, this film is is firmly in the realm of comedy. I saw uh, Zoe Bell's name in the credits as a stunt, oh. a stunt coordinator too, you know, um, Death Proof, where she actually has a, a feature role in that and a stunt woman appearing in so many Different icon kinds. of the industry, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, good yeah. for her. And I, I thought essentially this film was a, a lot of fun. It's the engine added is not necessarily the revenge motif that Gore is running, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it's a corny sort of idea. But love is at the heart of this film, basically. Yes, yes, I know. But yeah, we go along for the ride, like you said. Yeah, being pulled <laughs> by a pair of screaming goats, which is. Canonical with Norse mythology, absolutely 100%, even to the extent, and they make a joke of it in the film, but these goats who draw Thor through the sky in, in, as mm. his ride, basically, um, yeah. when he's not flinging Stormbreaker or Molnir around, um, they actually can be eaten as emergency rations. Oh, God. As long, <laughs> got dark, Rob. As long as you do not crack the bones. Right. They will, oh, and what they, will, they regenerate or something. Yeah, and in fact, at one stage where Loki, of course it was Loki, tricks one of the uh, the the diners into eating, to cracking one of the bones and sucking the marrow out. When the goats resurrect the next morning, one of them limps. <laughs> oh, gosh. Paul's <laughs> really mad about it. Hey, this is Viking humour. Yeah. <laughs> it's God. like he gets just, oh, <laughs> slapping, the, slapping the mead hall table and... <laughs> that's 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 hilarious. That is that is dead. classic Loki. What a larrikin! Um, if if I was to be nitpicky, because um, overall I did very much enjoy it, as I mentioned by the end of it, and I'd see it again. Um, yeah, very enjoyable. Um, so the only small things I'd say the ending, which I won't say too much about, I'll leave that a little bit of a surprise. Uh, I thought that was a bit implausible. Like some of the motivations there, I was like, well, this is coming out of nowhere and a bit convenient. Gore's character, I suppose, is the one that I call into question. Oh, yes, in the end. yes. Um, but I also understand they're setting Thor up to keep continuing on his growth journey and like building his character and giving him a lot of different things to um, master, let's say. Yes, Maybe it's that- two more scenes for Gore to help set up the resolution of this film. Yes, agree. I think that felt a bit rushed and a bit convenient. But you're right. I think they're also putting a lot of things in motion Um, and uh, slightly too many music drops. Like I love Guns N' Roses as much as the next gal, but I think there were too many pop music drops and they just stopped hitting the mark for me. 
I loved, I loved like in Ragnarok when Led Zeppelin comes in, but I think there just was a little too much use of music in this, which sounds ridiculous, but I just felt the effect started to lessen the more it was played. Well, That's just my thought. Well, me being me, I hardly actually noticed any of it because I didn't recognise hardly any of the music drops. So it was just it would, yeah. it just occasionally we'd just go, oh, here is a sort of um, a metal sort of part of the soundtrack or a rock and roll part of the soundtrack, which inexplicably to me, you know, in terms of references and stuff, I didn't get it. So it's just like, oh, yeah. I guess, I mean, maybe it's because... Guardians has a very diverse soundtrack, right? So it leans on music, but it's all different genres and it's really kind of creating a mood. Whereas I think this was a lot of the same kind of music. And I get that we're setting up, this is like a rock, you know, with eighties rock kind of vibe, but maybe I just think there was one or two too many. They could have been more effective. I've, we just pulled back, lifted our foot off the pedal a little with the music, but that's such a minor gripe and seems silly now when I say it because, um, you know, the music is fun and that creates the energy of the film. So I'll just be quiet now. <laughs> Take that back. Well, you know what? Speaking of all of those things, I'm thinking of like prog sort of space rock, you mm, know, mm, mm. And, and I found a track called Space Vikings, oh. which is by a group called Alpha Bootus. Uh, which is probably a star, I'm pretty sure. And it's from an album called Space Vikings and Other Stories. So they've actually got this kind of uh, a whole album full of this thematic Space Viking kind of thing. Cool. And that's what we're talking about with Thor, Love and Thunder. In terms of, yeah, nah, maybe I say the yay. I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah, me too. Do you want to ask the question, is it as good as Thor Ragnarok? Well, you know. What were you saying to me the other day? Second album? Yeah, second album syndrome. I think, you know, same as Guardians of the Galaxy and as Ragnarok. They came out, they were a surprise, they delighted. I think the expectations rose and it's very hard to come back and have the same impact with the second entry Mm. to anything, Mm. sequel, album, whatever, books, same diff. I think that element of surprise is gone and everybody is now looking to you to make them feel exactly the same way as when they saw the first one and were surprised by it and delighted by it. So I think maybe people will be more hard on this in light of Ragnarok. I don't think we need to compare. It's a fun movie on its own. Ragnarok is also a great movie. Maybe you like one more than the other. Yeah, I think it suffers a bit from from that expectation. And I will say as a comic book fan that uh, Jane Foster gets a much more complicated story in the Mighty Thor comic books and Mm -hmm. later on as she becomes Valkyrie or a Valkyrie herself, uh, she gets a lot more nuance and inflection than she does in this. But it's one movie, you know, come on. And they had, they've clearly had to pair it back already, like judging from what you were saying about roles being cut, and I think that was the right choice. It's already busy and it is full to the brim. Hmm. We could make other assertions and complications and ventures into the themes and tropes of the movie, but we're not. <laughs> well, we had fun yeah. and I think you'll have fun too, so hmm. it's a yay. So Space Vikings, Alpha Bootus from Space Vikings and Other Stories. 
Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Alpha Bootus out there from Montreal, Quebec. And mm. it's a space disco synth metal <laughs> group. And they do lots of, basically you can tell it's like prog rock space opera kind of things. And, you know, the, the covers of these things have all got giant ants. And this particular <laughs> one, a space Viking helmet, and that was the name of the tracks. Not space Viking helmet, but just space Vikings from the nice. same album. Yeah, I just thought that that captured the kind of the mood for Thork, whose actual soundtrack I will be revisiting on Zero G as we go along because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, and, yes, out of New Asgard and back into the Upside Down, we thought we would return and talk a little bit about Stranger Things now that Volume 2 has dropped and been out for several weeks. We covered Volume 1 a couple of weeks back with our full spoilerific thoughts, and I think you've had enough time, so we're going to talk Volume 2 and our final thoughts on the season uh, now that everything is wrapped. And so we will talk some spoilers, I think, so just be warned if you haven't had a chance to finish. Uh, volume, uh, volume 2 of Season 4 is two episodes. Episode 8 is one hour, 25 minutes, and Episode 9 is two and a half hours. That's a whopping lot of content that we got through, created by the Duffer Brothers, of course, and produced along with Sean Levy, Dan Cohen, and Ian Patterson, self-described by some of the actors as Scooby-Doo, meets Zodiac. Um, I am very curious to hear your final thoughts on the season. We uh, left things right, whereas before previous seasons, we had our factions of the kids, the teens, and the parents. We now have our three locational factions. We have Hawkins in the Upside Down, Russia, and then Desert slash On the Move <laughs> um, as well, now that Eleven has joined that fold. So I think, yeah, just wrap up final thoughts now that the season has come to a close. The penultimate season four, they're only going to be doing one more. And uh, they did leave us wanting more, I believe. So what were your thoughts, Rob, on the final? You had some theories, which I can tell you now, yeah, didn't come to fruition. So what did you think of how they handled the wrap-up? Well, I thought they were going to have Eleven use her powers to fly the Scooby combi van back to Hawkins, which would have been... You were dead set. Yeah, yeah. it was logical, and I thought they planted enough... um, cues in the story for that sort of thing. Yeah. But they didn't. But they yeah. didn't actually metaphorically fly her back. They did. Mentally speaking, using um, the sensory deprivation kind of control procedure. Freezer. That they had. Yeah. It was a, was it a, a pizza dough freezer. freezer yeah. <laughs> full of uh, heavily salted water, which makes you float. Mm. So it makes it more buoyant. And that worked out all right. Look, it was basically the big bad fight. And yes. every one of the factions, the faction in Russia, uh, the faction in near, out in the desert near Las Vegas, and the faction in or under Hawkins, they all had something to contribute to it. So it was quite, I thought the interlocking aspects of this worked quite well. The puzzle pieces yeah. to, came together. Where I, That's what we wanted. Where I do think they went wrong a little bit is they made it too long. It's a very bloated season, and the volume two could have been shorter. Ooh. It was, it, I definitely think that, but, and yet some things were still hanging. Like, I have existing questions left. Like, what happened to Dr. Owens? I thought oh, yeah. the letters that Max wrote were going to be a thing. Where are the military guys? What's going on with them? What about Enzo, the Russian guard? Like, mm, good point. There's so much that I guess 
by their standards, they'll say, well, that's going to come out in season five. Mm. But for me, I was like, you set up a bunch of stuff and didn't pay off. (laughs) And you spent half an hour or more doing what felt like the return to the Shire and the aftermath of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. I will say a two days later title card, I was like, cop out. That is such a cop out. But I understand they had to fast track to that final, yeah, return to Shire portion. The other side of that is if anyone earned the right to do that, it's them. Sure. You know, I must admit that um, although I found it quite literally monstrously long, I do acknowledge that they earned the right to get everyone back together and complete their emotional arcs and reunite them because they had so many different things going on. That took a lot. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And we want to see that. And i got to admit, by this stage, I was a bit bamboozled by who was who and what their relationships were there. And I'm I'm sort of digging my partner, Gail, in the ribs and saying, because she's really good at this, she knows all the characters and stuff, and saying, are they brother and sister? Who who is that? What, you know, (laughs) because I lose track of all that sort of stuff unless I've got it written in front of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. I think for me, I'd had it really hyped up that it was going to be dark and things would go wrong and they'd go quite risky and there'd be a death or deaths. Yeah. So I was ready to go in. I was ready to sob. And look, I think they they copped out a bit. I think they pulled their foot off the pedal. They could have done something quite heartbreaking and made an actual tragedy happen. Uh, I don't. I mean, I said we'd do spoilers, but like the death that did happen. Of course, that was the person. Like, what are they returning to? Their new character. Obviously, they're the one Mm. that's going to be dead. Um, I think that what happened with Max's story, I think I really enjoyed that Lucas and Max became the focus and the scenes at the end of them were quite sweet and impactful. Again, I thought we could have just, like, I like Max's character. I like Sadie Sink, but let's just get rid of her. Like... You know, don't don't back away from doing those things. But I I also get that uh, I don't know. Maybe they have a grand plan. They they have bigger plans for um, season five. My theory is that they will. It all started with Will. I reckon it's going to end with Will. I reckon season five we're going to get like a, a you know horrific Will death or something, or it's all going to come back to some you know, intermingled Will's connection with Vecna is going to go all sideways. I went in really ready to have a heartbreak and experience like a dramatic time and I was a little let down. Well, there's so many things about this and one of the big things about Stranger Things is the fact that they're all riffing off all these 80s tropes from movies and stuff. You know, it got got very The Thing and Aliens at some stages in this one. Uh, Yes, yes. Like the townsfolk getting together and but then it didn't really end up there was a couple of things that just didn't go anywhere yeah. um look i love that uh, murray got the yes. flamethrower mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Flame yes. i love that uh david um, harbour got to pick up conan the barbarian sword yes little easter eggy for you there yeah. um that was great i mean the mixture of that action plus what's going on in the house Plus, you know, I do think they intermingled that final showdown quite well. I mean, apart from the fact that Steve, Nancy and Robin were kind of left hanging in the vines for a long time while other action happened and then they returned to them. I'm like, they would be dead. They would be 100% dead by now. This is what Eddie was buying time for. 
Yeah. yeah like I, I think the timing was a little off, but in terms of the actual action, I thought it did have some great moments and obviously the Eddie stuff with the, um, Metallica, the now iconic master of puppets, Metallica track playing. I mean, that was just a cool scene and him and his, uh, those two actors, their dynamic, Dustin and Eddie, it was just great. Like mm. it felt that was, that's the, the essence that I'm watching Stranger Things for, and it just kind of gets bogged down in some other stuff sometimes. Did you catch the the whole idea of them being in a combi van with a couple of uh, stoners? It's so Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit like those um, stoner comedies yeah. and things like that as well. Um, and, and, you know, I think that maybe that's they're trying to do too much because they also there's the horror small town thing and then they're also trying to do this surfer stoner comedy it's like just do a couple of things don't do 50 and then the military thing and then they're trying to do the science thing with papa and 11 like explore their relationship and wrap that up things going everywhere and and how many russian prisons does um David Harbour have to escape from by helicopter in. <laughs> I know. I mean, but I will say I the Russian, I was like, this could go so sideways, this plot line. Like, but they brought it back. They made it about the action. It wasn't too implausible. Everybody got to have their day. I was going to say in the sun, but it's opposite of sun. I, I think they saved the Russian storyline. Yeah. I, I think it all gelled well enough. Maybe they needed to cut the length, as we do on Zero G often. <laughs> we know what it's we like. We know what it's like. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was all right. The big, the big bad battle that we were scaling up for, but of course there is another season, so you know <laughs> there is, and we're just going to lean further into I think this eleven Vecna connection. Uh, I think the way they left it was nice. Like they're actually doing, um, leaving it open ended now. Like they're saying, you know, we're not going to wrap everything in a bow. We're heading into the final showdown, and. And I hope they take some more risks in the final season. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I Overall, I enjoyed it. I think I agree with you. It was all ran a bit long, and I think some things could have been pared back. I think a lot was left hanging, um, but there was enough good stuff that I, I yeah, I, I enjoy Stranger Things. I think it's come pretty far from what it started as, but I'm okay with that. And I love the closing scene the shot the focus on uh, Eleven's face the look of determination upon her face was just fierce yeah yeah I I do think that oh one thing I will say is Mike he he's he really wasn't very much in this season I thought he has been the heart of previous seasons and his relationship with Eleven has been a really nice core element of them sweetly like coming together I think them being separated in this season actually had a pretty big impact and he was relegated to being kind of a background character and then they kind of shoehorned in some emotional stuff towards the end for him. Mm -hmm. And I I was just like, gosh, Finn Wolfhard has barely had anything to do in this season, I thought, and I thought that was sad when I was thinking back to his role in previous ones where he has been a key motivator of the action and the team. And I think that that he he just kind of was, was, he wasn't really driving anything plot wise. So, I mean, I'm hoping that also that desert faction was like the most boring faction. So I'm hoping that he will have more to do in the next season now that they're all reunited. This is the thing. They've got so many characters in play. That's it. And we've, that's what we've always said, right? That as, and as each character grows with more and more backstory, that's why you've got to kill some. This is it. I'm like, come on, they should have just, should have just done it. But you're right. It, it's, it's becoming very full 
And, um, what happened to Joyce and Hopper? The helicopter crashed. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard! No, not Jopper. Never, never. Well, that's the perfect, um, perfect trope, isn't it? Have it happen between season four and five or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Off screen. <laughs> oh, the off-screen death! The ki- people would riot. The, the alien, um, the alien three of Stranger Things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of freeing the aliens, I think we should go. <laughs> yes, I think that's about it for Zero G for today. Now that we've dug through all of this content, Joe Brunetti coming up next with Astral Glamour, and welcome aboard the Starship Zero G to our new podcaster, Alice Savage. Hey, Alice. Yes. Welcome, Alice. Thank you so much for joining us. Ooh. We're going to go out in celebration of Stranger Things with the Metallica track, as they did with Kate Bush. Metallica has also had a resurgence due to the use of Master of Puppets, and they're pleased about it. So there's a quote where they talk about how the Duffer Brothers incorporated their music, and they were really excited. They loved the scene that it was built around, and they're re- rising in the charts, lots of Spotify plays, and they're stoked. And they've done a lot of social media, like wearing Hellfire Club t-shirts and playing Master of Puppets. So they're on board. So I think anyone like me before who was like, meh, 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 people jumping on these bandwagons, the band's into it. Let's just celebrate some good music being used in good TV. So let's go out with Master of Puppets. Until next time. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.